we're adding customers at a rate that if we were a typical branch or a typical bank, we'd need like 850, 900-odd branches just to maintain the volume of customer onboarding. Um, the average bank would need 6,000 employees just to onboard as many customers as we're onboarding, and we're a company of under 300. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Hey everyone, just a quick heads up that we're giving away a ebook called 29 Growth Hacking Quick Wins. We co-authored this book with Matan Griffel of One Month and it'll give you a solid base on where you can create growth ideas from. So all you need to do is text QUICK TIPS to 33444. That's the word QUICK, Q-U-I-C-K and TIPS, T-I-P-S as in sugar to 33444 and you get instant access. All right, everyone. Today we have Josh Reach, who is the CEO of Simple, which provides online banking with automatic budgeting and savings. Simple sold to BBVA for over $117 million, um, and they are actually growing faster than any other bank right now, and they've eliminated all fees. Um, you know, I've, I've heard great things about them in the past. I'm actually a customer as well. Uh, they do things differently, and I, th- I think they do things the right way. So, Josh, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Really happy to be chatting with you today. Yeah, happy to have you here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the company, and we'll go from there. Sure. I mean, you, you gave some pretty good uh, highlights um, with the opening, but uh, for a little bit of backstory, uh, Simple was started a, a little over six years ago, really in response to my frustration with the banking system. You know, I'm not a banker by background, but um, I felt like I was in an adversarial relationship with my bank. Um, it felt like, you know, no matter how much work I put into it, I'd get hit by an overdraft fee or a late payment fee. And it just didn't seem like a fair relationship to be in. So I spoke to a friend of mine who I went to, to grad school with. And we sort of had this light bulb realization, which is that, you know, fundamentally the, the banks make money by keeping their customers confused. Um, you know, most banks uh, make most of their revenue and most of their profits by a long shot from fees and charges. And when you're in a business of, of profiting off your customers being ineffective at using the, the product, you set up these really weird um, incentives whereby you don't want your customers to be good customers. And that's a really bizarre situation to be in, especially for something that's just as that's as important as, as financial services where you know, everyone needs to have access to their money. Everyone needs to you know, achieve their financial goals. Yet the banks, who are, should be our closest allies, are really fighting against us. And so we thought that was horribly unfair. Um, so we both quit our jobs and, and started working on this, as I said, a, a little over six years ago. And it's been a pretty amazing ride. Um, you know, we really focus on using technology to, to do two things. One is to obviate um, the need for a lot of the fees that exist in banking by having a much lower cost infrastructure, but more importantly, using technology to connect to, to, to modern consumers in a more meaningful way um, with much more richer data, much more engagement, and much better understanding of what's going on with your money. Um, so yeah, that's what we're up to. Got it. Awesome. So can you give us some examples of how exactly you guys are making things simpler for people? Yeah, I mean, really obvious thing is the first thing that you see when you log into your simple account is uh, we've replaced sort of available balance and ledger balance with this notion or this idea we call safe to spend. 
And safe to spend tells you how much you can safely spend today without hurting yourself tomorrow. Um, it takes all your sort of upcoming payments, your bill payments, your goals. So this is how much money you really have available for you right now. And this is something that, you know, I felt as a customer of other banks and I heard from a lot of other people that, you know, the first thing you do when you log into your bank's website is you look at how much money you have in checking account, you look at how much money you have in savings, you try and remember how much you've got out on your credit card and your bills and you're suddenly doing mental math while sitting in front of like a $2,000 laptop. Crazy that most banks or nearly all banks won't do that for you. That's the thing you want to know, but they won't show you that number because if you really understand how much is safe to spend, you're not going to have that overdraft fee revenue for the banks. Um, and they obviously don't want that to happen. So they'd much rather you have fuzzy math and fuzzy thinking about your numbers so that you will overdraft your account. And that's just not fair. Right. So what I'm hearing is the, the ledger balance that most of us see in our bank accounts when we log in, that's a vanity metric you know, in, in all uh, startup lingo. And what you're giving them is sure. something actionable. Yeah, look, the ledger balance not only a vanity metric, it, it sort of it purposefully doesn't include for a lot of banks the transactions that have occurred in the past three days. So you're logging, you're, like you're pulling out your phone, you're out at the store, you want to buy a pair of shoes, and you're pulling out your phone to see if you've got the balance. And it's typically three days out of date, which is nuts. I mean, you, you're using sort of real-time technology, and we have these supercomputers in our pocket, but you're seeing something that's a couple of days behind. And then you have to remember, well, that's right, I bought some tickets for a concert yesterday and that's not getting there. And it's kind of crazy that in this day of sort of modern computing power, banks are still running batch-based processing systems and, and they're not giving you the information you need to make good financial decisions. Got it. Okay. So what type of numbers can you share around the business today? Sure. Um, so a couple of things. As you mentioned in the intro, we, we were acquired by BBVA. Um, in the time since acquisition, we've grown our, our employee headcount by 3x. Um, and as you alluded to, also in the intro, uh, I think we're, we're, we're adding customers at a rate that if we were a typical branch or a typical bank, we'd need like 850, 900-odd branches just to maintain the volume of customer onboarding. Um, the average bank would need 6,000 employees just to onboard as many customers as we're onboarding. And we're a company of under 300. So we're growing really quickly. We're doing it on the backs, really, of word of mouth, um, driven by having a highly differentiated user experience. Um, you know, the core fundamental hypothesis at Simple is that you can invest in user experience. If you really think about designing a service for how people think rather than how banks work, you can stand heads and shoulders above the, the other banks because um, they're, they're really undifferentiated. And when you have a differentiated approach, you can have much lower cost of customer acquisition, you can have much more efficient back-end operations that are designed to deliver that experience, and you can grow very quickly. Right, okay. And what is that growth rate, if you can share it, what does that look like right now? Because you guys are growing faster than any other bank. Yeah, look, we're, we're a little hamstrung in terms of the specific numbers we can talk about. Now that we're part of a, you know, a, a publicly traded company, we have to sort of pay attention to Reg FD and what we can disclose there. Um, but, but we are growing pretty damn quickly. Not a problem at all. Okay. So, I mean, you know, starting a, building a startup in a very regulated industry obviously has, you know, major, major hurdles, right? So can you just talk about some what you faced while growing Simple? Sure. Um, you know, we started working on this six years ago. It was probably three years later uh, before we actually had our first customer. Um, 
you know, there was a lot of work that we needed to do. I mean, in our first year, we were trying to solve two problems. The first one, you know, what do our customers want? We had a very high level idea if we wanted to use technology, we wanted to be well aligned with our customers, we wanted to be modern and transparent. But what does that actually mean? So, um, but consumers and, and customers aren't really used to having real honest conversations with their banks. So we launched a website and had this waiting list process. But for everyone who signed up on the waiting list, uh, we wrote personal emails back. would say, oh, hey, Eric, I see that you're currently working on a podcast. I'd love to know what you think about banking. And people would respond back. And we used that year to have over 20,000 conversations with potential customers to really inform you know, what the product needed to do and what pain points we needed to solve. The other thing that we needed to do in that year is to work out how to do it. Um, this is 2009 where we're still very much in the swing of the largest financial crisis in, in, in sort of living history. Um, banking regulation is changing dramatically. The largest regulation I think that sort of ever came into effect in, in US books was uh, the Dodd-Frank Act. Um, the regulators were still trying to work out how to implement that. And it just took a long time to say, here's what customers want. Here's what the regulations say you can and can't do. How do we navigate this to build an experience that doesn't compromise on our vision? And that took a long time. Um, you know, for example, one of the early things we said is we want our terms and conditions, like our account agreement, to be readable. Like most people sign up to banks, they get this document that is in like nine-point font. It's written in legalese and you're expected to abide by every rule in there um, as if you read it. Um, and so we wanted to make it clear that our terms and conditions were human readable. That took us 18 months of work. Because um, no one has ever gone through the lawyers and said, how do we turn this into plain English? Um, and, and those battles are really important for us because we put user experience sort of front and center of everything we try to optimize. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, talking about the early days, how did you guys go about acquiring your first 100 customers? Really, um, it came through Twitter. Um, I, I put out a link on my Twitter feed that, hey, um, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing, um, sign up to, to this website. And I didn't have a lot of Twitter followers at the time. I still don't have a huge Twitter following. But you know, I had a, a bunch of people who signed up and I'd email them back saying, and they were my friends. I'd say, hey, Joe, how are things going at college? I'd love to know what you think about what we're doing. It's simple. And because we were responding back, people would tell their friends about it. And this thing sort of spiraled and we were doing, you know, 10 of these emails a day to hundreds of these emails a day. I remember one day, um, you know, we'd Google everyone who, who was signing up to try and work out where these people were coming from. Um, we'd get, there was one day we got a bunch of guitarists and drummers signing up. And I'm not a musician, so I was like curious how this happened. And it turns out, you know, Derek Sivers, he runs this, you know, fantastic blog. Mm. He used to be the founder of CD Baby. He wrote this you know, inspirational blog post about how if you, you know, if you want to follow your dreams, go follow your dreams. And if you want to go start a bank, go start a bank. And he just hyperlinked the word bank to, to our website. And so all these musicians started signing up. And so by having that, those early conversations with people, we got to inform the product. But it also led to this viral effect whereby we've got this waiting list of people who are ready to, to join on the platform when we were ready to go live. Yeah, uh, we were talking about this, you know, before the call, I mean, before we started the you know, there's this one startup I was working at and, you know, all of a sudden all the developers and designers just started, you know, talking about simple. And I, all of a sudden I found myself with a, with a cardboard and, and the simple card as well. So it just kind of had, yep. it had a viral effect. I've never seen a bank have a viral effect like that. So yeah. props to you. Thanks. I mean, it goes back to that idea of differentiation. Um, if you look at how banks typically acquire customers, the number one channel for, for acquiring customers in banking still today is the, is the retail branch. 
And like I'm in New York right now and you know, looking out the window you can see a city bank on one corner and directly opposite the other side of the street you've got a chase. And it's like Starbucks locations. Starbucks around Manhattan, um, they're on every street corner because they know that the coffee you're going to get from there versus any other store is basically the same thing. They want to have the, you know, the store on the same side as the street as you so you don't have to cross the street. That's how people pick bank branches or how they, they, they decide which bank to switch to is you know, what's on the side of the street for me. When your level of differentiation is that low, it just signals as a huge opportunity for building a differentiated product. Um, and so by, by investing in that user experience, investing in true differentiation, um, you have an opportunity for people to actually talk about it. Actually, I can see a Bank of America just over there as well. So it's crazy. <laughs> okay. So, you know, we yeah. talked about the first 100 customers. What's one yeah. cool thing Simple is doing today to acquire more customers? Just keep on doing what we're doing. Uh, I think, you know, um, it, it's, it's interesting that as you grow as a company, uh, um, there's a lot of pressure to sort of compromise on your values and compromise on the mission. Um, our mission at Simple is to help people feel confident with their money. And that means a lot of things, but it really means providing a, an easy-to-use service, being aligned from an incentive perspective with our customers, providing great customer service, providing great technology. As long as we keep doing those things, as long as we keep sticking to our mission, um, I think we're in a really great position. Um, and the, the, the level of differentiation still remains high. Yeah, I think that's the key thing. You guys are differentiated and you guys are staying consistent with it. And that's the, that's the growth lever for you guys, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. Like, you know, when you're adding 100 customers onto a platform, that's one level of complexity. When you're doing hundreds of thousands, um, there's a lot of back-end operations that goes into operating a, a, a system like Simple. And so we're doing a lot of innovation in terms of how we do compliance, in terms of how we do our accounting, our risk, all the back-end operations that, that go into this to make it as simple, pardon the pun, for our customers. We just, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into that, into scaling out a business like this. Okay. So, yeah. you know, obviously, you know, when you're, when you're starting out, you have to, you know, you have to worry, especially being highly regulated, you have to worry about compliance and things like that. So how do you go about hiring the right people for these roles? You know, it's funny. Um, I used to think that banks, just as a, a consumer, I used to think that banks were full of, um, you know, nefarious people coming up with ways to, 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 to plot against their customers and, you know, having now been in the industry for, for a couple of years, you know, those people definitely exist within banks. But for the most part, banks are full of really well-intended people um, working in really bad organizations. And so I remember when we made our first sort of compliance hire into the company and before that we're all just a bunch of um, technologists and, and product people. Um, you know, you, if you provide people a great environment and a great culture, free of a lot of the cultural attitudes that exist within banking, they can get to do some phenomenal work. Um, so we now have a compliance organization, which is completely unlike compliance organizations at most banks. Um, you know, one of the things that we do is like a lot of tech companies, we, have, we use GitHub internally, and we also use GitHub to manage new product ideas. Our compliance team submits some of the best, craziest, wackiest new product ideas because not only do they understand the system, really well. They've been thinking about this stuff for a long time, but they've never been in an environment where they've been encouraged to be creative. And these are naturally creative people. Um, but typically, at most banks, compliance is a culture of saying no to everything. That's how you get promoted as a compliance person. Just be really good at saying no. 
when you give these people an opportunity to say yes and to try and to collaborate with other parts of the company where you can have a compliance person collaborating with someone from you know creative and someone from product, you can come up with some really phenomenal things. And you just really have to play in the best nature of people and put them in an environment where culture is highly valued. Um, and, and you can do compliance in a really you know creative way. Yeah, so the, uh, the key takeaway here is I, I think you find talented people that are being held back in, you know, industries that are ripe for quote unquote disruption. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. You know, there's, there's one thing I read about, uh, you, you talk about the five things that you focus on. I think it's ship C. Yeah. So th- th- that's interesting. Um, you know, it's now two things. This is one of the lessons I sort of learned over the last six years is every time, um, our sort of employee headcount doubles, my job shrinks. The list of things that I do shrink by a factor of two, effectively. And so now I'm down to you know, really only two things that I, that I care about day in and day out, and that's vision and culture. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not that it takes less time. It's just a more intense focus on those two things because maintaining vision and culture as a company grows is, is just so critical. Like I was talking about the culture that we have in compliance. Um, it's a culture that we have across the company and maintaining that culture um, is extraordinarily valuable. Um, if you look at banks right now and our competitors, which are primarily the large banks, a lot of them are looking at technology. They're looking at fintech saying, hey, we could do all of these things. And sure, maybe they can do some things technologically. They have some constraints there in terms of their legacy platforms. But let's say they are able to implement new pieces of technology. What they're going to miss is, is, is the people side of the equation. Um, unless you have the, the culture of innovation, um, it's really hard to do the right thing for your customers. And so the culture that we sort of um, lucked into when we started out working on Simple um, led to a great experience for our customers, which led to a great brand. And that's tremendously valuable. Um, in this undifferentiated space. So, you know, my number one job right now is vision and culture. Got it. Okay. Now, can you give a little, um, just to paint a little more context for, you know, what Shipsy is, can you kind of give some examples from that acronym and then I'll, I'll go into my next <gasps> question follow-up? Can, can, can you remind me what that acronym was? That was my job two years ago. Got it. Okay. So, I'll, so strategy, I'll, hiring, yep. investor relations, product and culture. I think that was it, That right? is exactly it. You got it, man. Okay, remember. Remember. Well, it was my job, so I should remember these things. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So yeah. I guess the question yeah. for you now is when you were doing Ship C, how many employees did you have? And then now that you're down to just two things, how many employees do you have now? So that was probably around the 50 to 80 employee mark. Um, and, and now we're getting close to 300. I think we're 283 this morning, but we're, we're still hiring pretty quickly. Um, and so the, the, the way sort of that, that acronym relates to you know, vision and culture now is Strategy, um, it, it really, I, I set strategy through the vision. Um, and so that's sort of incorporated under vision. Hiring, I, we have a, and a, now a great people organization. We have now great recruiters working for us. They're responsible for hiring. Um, but the most important thing I can do from a hiring perspective is to have the right culture because that's what attracts great talent to come and join our company. Um, investor relations has, has sort of dropped off now that we're a part of BBVA. But we still operate with a board of directors, so I'm a member of our board of directors, and um, my real role at the board of directors is to keep them aligned with our vision, um, because we have great operators who are working for, on our executive team. They, they're in charge of their operational units. My role on the board is to tie the work that everyone's doing on a day-to-day basis back to our long-term strategy. 
Um, product, we have a great product team, so that, that's, that's their job. But again, I set product direction through vision. And then culture remains as, as something that's critically important. And the way that we work on that is having a clear set of values, having a very transparent organization. Um, I send out sort of this weekly email, which is sort of a, a, a no-holds-barred view on, on, on what's going on in the company. We do a company all-hands meeting every Friday where I talk every Friday about what's going on. We celebrate our successes, but we also commiserate and, and speak honestly about our failures. Uh, whenever we have board meetings, we'll share those full presentations out internally so everyone can see what we're trying to do. Um, and that's a really important way of investing in your culture. God. And so how, how do you structure your day between these two roles now? It's varied. It's really hard to say um, that, I, that I have a common day-to-day template. Um, typically, each week, uh, we, we have executive team meetings twice a week, one that's looking at sort of um, the short-term, one that's looking at the long-term. Um, I, I'm much more active in the long-term meeting where we're looking at vision and how we connect what we're doing in the short term to that vision. Um, I also do one-on-ones with random people across the company. Um, I used to do it with everyone across the company every quarter, and that just became difficult. So now every week I do um, a handful of those. That way I'm just connecting with everyone and getting a sense of what's going on. Um, and, yeah, those, those are the probably constant things in my weekly calendar, but then it varies depending on where we are in our budgeting cycle, board meeting cycle, press, and those sort of things. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, can you tell us about one big struggle you faced while growing the business? Probably the one big struggle would be thinking of one big struggle. Um, there's been hundreds. It's, it's a really difficult business to, to launch. Um, I, I speak to a lot of young entrepreneurs um, speaking at a class on Friday, and one common question that I get is look, they'll pull me aside after I've spoken and said, hey, Josh, I've heard everything you've said, but you don't understand my business is, is, is completely going through a roller coaster right now. Some days are phenomenal. Some days are horrible. How do you deal with it? Uh, or at least tell me, you know, does it get better? And the reality is it's always a struggle when you're doing something new. Um, there are definitely days which are great. There are definitely days which really test you. What you get better at as you grow and mature and you go through personal development is you get better at sleeping at night. You get better at trusting your team. You get better at sort of dealing with these challenges. It's not that the challenges disappear. Um, there's sort of this culture, particularly in the tech world, where everyone's like, how's it going, bro? Oh, I'm killing it. Um, yet they're, they're not sleeping at night um, or they're you know, running out of cash or whatever their particular concern is. Um, I think we all need to be honest that this is difficult work. If you're doing something important, um, it, it's going to be hard. And if it was easy, then everyone would be doing it. Um, but what happens as you, you mature and develop as a leader is you learn to trust the people around you and you learn to, to not sweat the little things and just concentrate on the things that you can do, um, you can really move the needle on. And for me, that's working on vision and culture. And, and, and those are the things I worry about. But those are the things also I know I'm quite strong at. Awesome. Okay. What's one productivity hack you can share with everyone? <laughs> Um, productivity hack. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm not much of a sort of a productivity hacker. I, I like keeping my inbox under 50, um, which is requires some work. Um, I, I have a to-do list thing, um, and every morning I just sort of run through what's on my to-do list. Uh, that's not much of a hack. I guess one of the hacks that I do do with a to-do list is, is um, it's really important to have goals. I, I believe in, in having sort of personal goals. And I believe in my team having personal goals and keeping people accountable to those goals. And one of the things that I do is if I'm in a meeting 
and I say I'm going to do something, I make sure I write that down on my to-do list. But also, if anyone else says they're going to do something, I write that down on, on, on my to-do list so that I follow up, um, just to have that, that, that feedback loop of, um, if someone says something, let's make sure we're, we hold each other accountable, because that's, that's really important to a highly functioning team. Got it. Now, does that sit in like uh, like an internal wiki that shows like everyone's goals and put some you know any, anyone? No, no. We have different teams that do it different ways. The, the way I do it, there's there's an app by Swiss Miss called To Do. It's just a minimal to do list, and that's just what I use for myself. I know other people use other things. Got it. Okay, makes sense. And there's one question I have to ask you, and I think this stems back from uh, maybe three or four years ago. But how did you how did you guys get to DomainSimple.com? Um, that, that was a lot of work. Um, so we, we were originally bank simple and we decided we wanted to drop the bank simple.com was, was parked, um, for a while. And, um, it was just buying domains is, is difficult. So, um, when we first registered bank simple, I had actually emailed the, the owner of simple.com from a personal account saying, Hey, can I buy this off you for 50 bucks or whatever it was? And you have no, you have no leverage in these conversations. You just have to wait it out. And it took us four years, I think, or three years uh, before we actually ended up getting the domain. And it was just waiting and lucky timing. And just that's the only leverage you have is just drawing out the negotiation. Um, and yeah, it just took time. Got it. Okay. So, I mean, how, how, you know, what does that response look like when you're offering to, to buy the domain for, you know, a very small amount? You just have to start the conversation somewhere. It's, it's a lot of puffery. Um, I, I think the, the day the domain deal closed is we sort of agreed on a price and the domain owner came back to me and said, well, I've got another offer that's twice as much. And I said to him, well, look, you know what? I'm going to walk away from this. I only negotiate with people who negotiate in, um, you know, uh, with full faith. And this doesn't feel like a full faith negotiation to me, so I'm now withdrawing my offer. Um, I'm sorry we're not able to get this, um, and I'm going to move on. And I was just very firm and <laughs> excuse me, walked away from the deal. And he called me back half an hour later and said, actually, you know what? Let's do it for the price we talked about. <laughs> wow. So he, yeah, yeah. Um, so you got it sounds like uh, you got to be – you got to stick your nose to it and, and be a hard negotiator. <laughs> Look, negotiation is, is very much an art. Um, there's a lot of science, like the Harvard Negotiation Lab and all that sort of stuff, but it's very much an art. And <clears throat> probably the hardest negotiations are negotiations with parties where it's not going to be a repeated negotiation and also parties where you have very incomplete, incomplete information and both of those things exist in, in, in domain negotiations. Right. Okay. That's helpful. All right. What's one must-read book you'd recommend? Uh, must read book that I recommend. Um, a business book or anything. Book in, in, I really like Feynman. Uh, Feynman's autobiographies. Um, I'm a, a physics nerd. I read them as a child, and that sort of wonder and curiosity and passion for for, for learning was 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 pretty cool for me. I actually just sent them. I just bought the collected works of Feynman and sent them to one of the executives at BBVA because um, he made a comment about quantum physics on a call the other day, and um, turned out he was a bit of a physics um, nerd. So, and he'd never read Feynman, so I sent them all to him. Interesting. What type of yeah. you know uh, around physics? I mean, I'm not a physics nerd, but there has to be some key takeaways from it. So, what would be you know what would be your key takeaways? Uh, understanding first principles. Um, you know, trying to be rational in decision making, um, but really just having a, the, the value of having passion. 
Um, you know, I, I don't think Feynman became a Nobel Prize winning physicist because of what he did at college. Um, he became a Nobel Prize winning physicist because his curiosity was encouraged as a child. Um, and, um, you know, goes back to the point you were making earlier about hiring people who, who are really great fits for what we're trying to do at Simple. Passion, curiosity, creativity um, are really important things to look for. Empathy um, is it's hugely important for us um, because th those are sort of innate things that it's hard to train for. And if you don't have them, um, it's hard to get them. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Well, Josh, this has been great. What's the best way for people to find you online? Uh, I'm I2PI on Twitter. Um, and uh, all the stuff that we do is at simple.com. Awesome. Great. So everyone, this is Josh Reich from Simple. Make sure you check out simple.com. It just makes sense. I mean, even if you just you know take a look at your phone every day and it tells you how much you can spend, I think that's a massive, massive win. So everyone, make sure to check it out. Again, uh, Josh, thanks so much for doing this. Hey, my pleasure, Eric. Hey, everyone. Just a quick heads up that we're giving away a ebook called 29 Growth Hacking Quick Wins. We co-authored this book with Matan Griffel of One Month, and it'll give you a solid base on where you can create growth ideas from. So all you need to do is text quick tips to 33444. That's the word quick Q-U-I-C-K and tips, T-I-P-S as in sugar, to 33444, and you get instant access. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.